This is a recording made of the chapter of the open book and is number two of a series entitled Christian Fundamentals, a series particularly addressed to those hearers who may be young in the faith and also to those who may be teachers of such. It is our custom at this, at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and if you who are listening care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Luke chapter 24. In our first study of this series, we were warned a little bit by the reference of the Apostle that although he said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable, he warned us that now we see by means of a mirror enigmatically. Now, instead of that being a contradiction, it is this, that scripture is a perfect revelation given by God for his particular purpose. And that's the point. There are so many critics of the word of God who demand that if this book comes from God, it should contain all sorts of teachings which have nothing whatever to do with God's purpose. And God's purpose embedded in this book is one of redemption. It's not necessary that Moses should occupy reams of paper in giving some analysis of creation in order to justify himself. He would be a perfect fool to have occupied time and thought with scientific terms to a nation that was only just coming out of servitude, misery and slavery and wouldn't understand any of the terms at all. It's a perfect revelation, but it was given for a purpose. So we must prepare, be prepared to find that a depth and height that are only just suggested, but never explored. In fact, we are warned that no man by searching can find out God unto perfection. We have many problems as to why this happened and why that happened, which are never answered. The scripture, however, goes on to say that now we see by means of a mirror in a riddle, but then we shall know, even as we are known. Now we know in part, but then face to face. So let's be thankful for what God has given us and be grateful that he's limited us. For I think most of us, however big our craniums may be, We'll have to admit that not one of us could ever hope in the span of human life to encompass all that's already been written, let alone crying for the moon that God will never give us in this life. So, we come now to this point. And I'm borrowing for a little bit of my past experience. After taking a meeting once in Manchester, a young believer came to me and said that she was greatly troubled because she was continually being exhorted to read the scriptures and she kept on trying but wherever she opened the page it all seemed so perplexing all such strange names of people and places all sorts of peculiar things written she didn't know where to begin or where to end or wh what do you do about it well of course I had to agree with her that it wasn't an easy matter. It's very wrong to say, oh, no, no, no. It is. 
a problematic book. It's so written. It's got to last for all time. It's got to speak the mind and will of God for over the centuries and deal with all sorts and classes of people at all stages of growth. Would it be a miraculous book? It is a miraculous book to think that it can be translated from Hebrew and Greek into the language of primitive Indian tribes and Eskimos and they can all rejoice and read together their own version The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Although the poor Eskimo has never seen a sheep and don't know what a shepherd is. And so I fished out of my pocket most likely an envelope that somebody had sent me a letter and on the back of that envelope I said well let's help you like this. Look, you must, you must at least get an idea of this book and that book and this book. And I thought, well, afterwards, I believe there are others who might be glad of a sort of guidance. And as this series of recordings has in view young believers, on the one hand, and those who are engaged in teaching young believers, on the other hand, and incidentally in brackets, old believers who know a lot about it as well, uh, I thought it might be useful as another part of this study just to do the same thing. I borrowed from the Psalms last time, let us walk round the walls of Jerusalem, let us consider her bulwarks. Well now let's listen to the other exhortation, arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it. Well if Abraham did that, as I believe he did, he couldn't say, well that's alright, I know all about that. He did the right thing, he went to the length of it, and he went to the breadth of it, but he'd have to go back and stop over and over and over again in order to say he was fully and personally acquainted with every square yard of it. So, we're not expecting to do any more than just an indication of the teaching of Scripture. But I believe that if we'll just accept this little guidance this evening, uh, we shall feel, both for ourselves and particularly if we have to lead others in this pathway that it's maybe worth the doing. We observe in Luke 24 that our Saviour himself didn't despise the method of beginning at Moses and the prophets expounding things concerning himself, taking them through. We find the Apostle Paul doing the same thing when he met the leaders of the Jews at Rome uh, an all-day conference beginning at Moses and the prophets and taking it through. So we're in good company if we do the same thing this evening. <coughs> now you see that I had planned this to have the green bays down, the complete flight of steps, and then according to whether it was a class that could go quickly or whether we had to go very slowly, I would have only one or two steps exposed at a time. But here we've got the whole thing before us and we can see with the, the moment we look at it that it starts with Genesis and it ends with Revelation as of course the scripture does. And it is a very, very much of a beginner in scripture who hasn't already sensed that there is a very definite echo in the book of the Revelation of the things that are introduced in the book of Genesis. You remember, we have the present heaven and earth in the six days creation which falls under the ban of sin and death. And paradise, 
The word we use when we look back to the Garden of Eden was lost. The book of the Revelation brings in a new heaven and a new earth and then we are brought into paradise restored with its trees of fruit and its river of living water. And many other things in the book of Genesis find their echo in the book of Revelation. Gloriousness. For in the book of Genesis we have a curse coming in and in the book of the Revelation we have no more curse. In the book of Genesis we have sin and death coming in and in the book of the Revelation no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. So that's a blessed thought if we could only get a believer started and say, you see, here's a pattern. What God starts at the beginning, he picks up and carries through and brings it triumphantly at last to a conclusion. Now then, there's a long way to go before we get there. But God had to be patient too. God is at a wait. He's represented in scripture as saying, all day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. So if it's going to be a bit irksome for you to wade right through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, well, he had to be waiting for his people to listen to him and his patience is put before us as something for us to emulate if we possibly can. Well now then, what about these steps through the book? What should we include? What should we omit? Well, that's a puzzle, isn't it? And of course I'm not saying to you that this is inspired, this was only inspired at the moment, it was put down and I didn't alter it. Uh, but it's up to you, especially those of you who have the responsibility of teaching others, to know the requirements of those who are meeting with you, to know just where they are, and if you feel you ought to have more steps or less, well that's between you and the Lord. All I can do is to give you this one. So I've suggested we go Genesis, and I said, after you've done Genesis, you must do Exodus. Why must we do Exodus? Well, you see, Genesis is only written to prepare you for Exodus. Genesis goes through the thing, oh, it covers a tremendous lot of time in a short space, in order to get you ready for the nation that's going to be delivered by the blood of the Passover lamb. The whole thing's waiting for redemption to be put into operation. So you must have Exodus. And of course, I... I wondered if I ought to put Leviticus in, but that's a difficult book for a beginner. So I said, well, all right, let's take a leap. After we've looked at the beginning, let's take a tremendous leap to the prophet Isaiah. Oh, you'll say, well, a lot you missed out. Well, of course I have. But young people, you know, sometimes go upstairs two or three at a time. And until recently, somebody else I know used to be reprimanded for doing it, but... Just now, like Israel, I'm halting on my tie, so I only go up one at a time, and that grudgingly. So here we've got Isaiah. Now, the moment you read Isaiah, all oh, you'll have, you have to say to yourself, well, who are these people that he's speaking about? What is this city of Jerusalem? Why should Israel be in this position? Well, then, of course, you'd have to go back to the earlier books afterwards to fit it all in. Then from Isaiah, we make another big leap, to the Gospels. And when, when we've reached that step, although it's not halfway up our step, our theories, we change from promise, Old Testament, to fulfilment, New Testament. And the Gospel according to Matthew presents us 
with Christ's birth, the nature of his birth, the reason why he came, and so on. There are four Gospels, three of them are called synoptics, and most of you know that the word synoptic means to have a similar point of view. S-Y-N is the word together with, and you know that the optic has to do with your eyesight, so it's a similar point of view. That's Matthew, Mark and Luke. But John has a very different point of view. According to the history of the times, he wrote the Gospel according to John at the request of his disciples when he was exceedingly old man. And although he speaks about the same Christ and the same earthly life, he tells you that he made his selection for a purpose. The, the, the many other things truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written, he says, in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. So John has a message of life through his name quite independently of whether Christ was king or priest or you were going to be the members of his body or the bride, they never enter into it. It's just life through his name. And what God is going to do with those who have life through his name, he alone knows and he hasn't told us. So don't be tempted to say to me afterwards, and what shall this man do? For the very Gospel of John says, what is that to you? You see? So that's all right. Then we come to the Acts of the Apostles, which of course is a historic book, and sometimes history may be rather weary and dreary, but this one is most vital because here we have the movement. It moves from Jerusalem via Antioch to Rome. And that introduces, as we go on our journey, a series of meetings. Churches are founded and to them epistles are written. And as far as I can get any information on the matter, I've come to see that the epistle to the Galatians is Paul's first epistle. And there's this about it, friends. There's a possibility that the epistle to the Galatians is the first book that was ever written in the New Testament. You see, there would be no need to write the Gospels if Israel had repented during the Acts of the Apostles and accepted Christ. And no need to write about that. But when the time came and it was seen that Israel did not repent, then it became necessary that some record should be left as to why Christ came and what he did and what the consequences were. So, it's very, very possible that the first words of the New Testament, the first words of the New Testament in order of the time of writing are these. Paul an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. <coughs> you must say, what an imagination you've got. Well, you can't get very far without it as long as you don't make it your guide to distinct it. Now, we leap from the epistle to the Galatians, where the Gentile is given a hearing, to the epistle to the Hebrews, who are naturally descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Hebrews who had become Christians, but were still, as it were, something like um, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, yet with a good deal of the grave clothes yet about him. And the apostle wrote to them and showed them all the fullness there was in Christ. And as he steps through Hebrews, he contrasts him with Adam and with Moses and with Aaron 
and with sacrifices and all the things that went up to make the Jewish faith and points away to a better covenant and a better priesthood and better things. Then we include, as we must, one of the epistles that belong to the high calling, the church of the one body, the mystery, the epistle to the Ephesians, and then end with the book of the Revelation. Makes you feel breathless to get to the top of these steps, don't it? Well, there it is, you see. Now, what are we going to do this evening? Well, I think we'll go down them again now and go up them just a little bit more slowly. We'll just have a look at a little bit and see what these ten steps convey. <clears throat> and you say to me, are you going to get right through the ten steps? I don't know, friends. I think we're better in the language of a statesman of some years ago. I think we'll wait and see. Now then, the book of Genesis. It's a good title, but it was not the title given to it by Moses. It's the title given to it by the Greek translators many years ago, many years afterwards. Genesis means the beginnings of anything. It's a good title. The Hebrew Bible didn't use titles like that. They used to just lift out the first word and call the book by the first word. It seems a funny idea to us, but it was good enough for them. So the title of the book of Genesis is Beroshes, in the beginning. In the beginning. That's its title. Now I would say to this young person, who I was sitting sketching this out, I said, now don't you let people trouble you because they tell you that you can't believe the Bible, you can't believe the book of Genesis, because anybody knows today that the universe was not created just 6,000 years ago. They could measure by uh, various means now the radiation of carbon and so on. They could measure uh, when a piece of thing, uh, wood or whatever it may be ceased to be a living thing and they can tell you within about a couple of hundred years as to whether it was 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago and so on. There's no need to be boggled at the thought that coal mines contain evidence that they were once forests and they've been submerged perhaps for millennia. Because the Bible says, in the beginning, now, will you ask your scientific friend if he knows when that was? Well, of course, he doesn't know any more than I do. And if your scientific friend wants not only thousands of years or millions of years, he can have as many millions of ages as he wants. God is not concerned to load our minds with that. He passes over the whole creation of the universe in seven words in the original. Just a few more in ours, but seven words. Then he says, there's an interval. Our version says, and the earth was without form and void. But if you'll be very careful in reading your Bible, you stop and notice that the word was is printed in two different types. And if any of you have had anything to do with printers and typesetting, you know that nobody in his senses would be worried as to altering the type of the word was right through the Bible unless there was some very, very important reason. You just give that to your scientific friend to get on with and tell him he hasn't even read the book intelligently, let alone uh, be able to criticise it. But while he's worrying over that, I'll tell you this, that where you have the word was in italic type, 
it represents the verb to be. But while the Jew says the verb to be, he never writes it. It's always assumed. But this sounds Irish. When the verb to be is printed in the Bible, the Old Testament, the verb to be isn't the verb to be, it's the verb to become. Let me give you an illustration. A man became a living soul. He wasn't one before, not to be he breathed. So, Genesis 1 verse 2 says, And the earth became without form and void, and darkness is upon the face of the deep. Now the movement starts that commences our Bible. This is where we come in. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the, of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And then he gives a sevenfold vision to the man named Moses. God is not represented in the first chapter as occupying a day in making light and sitting back and waiting till next day to do the next thing. It's a series of seven visions. And I would like you to once more remember that Genesis finds its echo in the book of the Revelation. Supposing we go to the Revelation to get a parallel. There's another man who has a series of seven visions. That's John. Because the bulk of the book of the Revelation, starting from chapter 4, is made up of a series of visions that take place seven times over in heaven and on earth. So now we've got in Genesis, seven days, evening and morning, and you've got seven visions, uh, uh, heaven and earth. And one man is looking back to a creation, and the other man's looking forward to one. And neither of them were there at the time, and they're just given seven visions as to how it was brought about, or seven visions as to what are going to take place before that new heaven and new earth come. So there's Moses at one end and John at the other, and that's all it amounts to. Now the reason why Moses went out of his way even to speak about six days creation was because when he led the children of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai and they were entering into covenant relationship with God, it was going to be enjoined upon them to keep the Sabbath day holy. They said, well, what am I going to do that for, Moses? Four in six days, see, and rested on the Sabbath. That's all. Well, after that, the point of interest comes when Adam is created. Again, you'll have the problem. Are there not evidences that there were men on the earth long before Adam? Well, speaking just broadly, yes, any amount of evidence. Any amount of evidence. But there's no evidence anywhere that God ever created a man in his own likeness, in his own image, until that man was created. And that's where we start. So far as we can see, without the Spirit of God, Without the neshama, as you'll find the word breath, gives a very distinctive meaning, the neshama. Without that, man is the highest of the vertebrates on the earth. He's a, a mammal, he's a vertebrate, and these men-like creatures that have left their mark on the earth before were the highest order of animals walking the earth. You're not upset because you're speaking about men as animals, are you? Because they used to have a game, didn't they? Is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? And then it might be Shakespeare who was an animal. So, all right, friends, you're animals apart from that animating breath of God. And here's the, here's the 
thing that God did in the earth, as he never did as far as we got any record before. A consultation takes place. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. After our likeness. He was made in the image and likeness of the Son of God who was yet to come. Because we are told in the New Testament that uh, that Adam was a figure of him that was to come, Romans 5, and that Christ is the second man and the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. Well, that's where we start with the first Adam, and we look forward in the New Testament to the second man and the last Adam. Then incidentally, the name Adam does not necessarily mean red earth. Some people tell you so. Uh, but the word demos, which is the word likeness, gives us the word Adam, although you may not see it unless you saw the letters written down. The, uh, the two letters that are, as it were, part of the root of the word, the word letters D and M. And so Adam was in the likeness, the likeness of him that was to come. The way in which the book of Genesis is written and distributed is to compress in 11 chapters 2,000 years 2,000 years in 11 chapters do stop and think of that then somebody after he's read 11 chapters in which are compressed 2,000 years turns around and wants to know who Cain's wife was well there are a good many other things you don't know in that 2,000 years that are left out it needed inspiration to know what to leave out if you've got to write a history with any sense in it at all. You ever try and write the history of any movement that covers, say, a hundred years, just a few hundred years, and get it into two or three chapters. It allowed to be readable. And then, at chapter 12, we start with the making of a new nation by the call of Abraham, and separating his seed from all the rest of the earth. And that divides the book of Genesis into two. Adam is the beginning of the race. Abraham is the beginning of the great nation. Now the story goes on from the creation of Adam until you get the picture of the second Adam, Noah, and ends with the ark and the flood. And those who were in the ark are brought through that judgment of death typically at least, into a new world. And the second half of Genesis commences with Abraham and goes on and ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. And the word coffin and the word ark mean the same thing. The ark was made watertight by pitch and the mummified body of Joseph was in all probability embalmed with bitumen. And they both meant to bring someone through a deluge of death and take them through to resurrection life. That was the right reason why Joseph gave commandment concerning his bones. Well now that's just the very beginning of an introduction to the first book of the Bible. And we've got ten of them to do something like that. So I, I have a feeling, friends, we're, we're going to be out of breath and we're going to get to the top tonight, don't you? Well, let's come and take a step into the book of Exodus. Here the book of Exodus has its Greek title, a very good one. 
Of course, the Hebrew title is These Are the Names. But don't forget, don't forget redemption is associated with the names. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. It's a staggering thought, friends, to believe that God actually does refer to you and me by our names. But you say, oh, no, you're, you're drawing now on your imagination. But he said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus heard him. And he spoke to Mary in the garden. He said, Mary, and she recognized his voice. And he tells us that he knows us all by our name. We're not all just in a mass. And he looks at us as a crowd. One man at least could say, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as well as saying Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So the Hebrew title of Exodus is, these are the names. <coughs> but the Greek title is Exodus. And you can see by the word that it's made up of two words in the Greek language, ex meaning out of and hodos meaning away. When our Saviour said in John 14, I am the way, he said, I am the hodos. Well, now there's the balancing word when we come, as we shall not do this evening, to the epistle to the Hebrews, we shall find that the balancing word there is not exodus, but isodus. And even though you don't know a single word of Greek, you'll guess, won't you, that exodus, if it means the way out, is balanced by isodus, which means the way in. For there are two aspects of the great redemptive work of Christ. You'll find that God spoke to the children of Israel through Moses and he said that he was going to lead them out and bring them in. Now it's so very important that these two aspects should be kept in mind. To use a figure, there are some preachers who bless God they do preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. They do speak of a redeemer that leads them out from the bondage of sin and death. And that's where they stop. And it would be like as though Moses led the children of Israel out under the Passover lamb, got across the Red Sea, said, well, goodbye, carry on, look after yourselves, and left them. But Moses didn't leave them, neither did God. He who led them out from Egypt, led them through the wilderness for 40 years, led them through the river Jordan into the land of promise. And not only so, from another aspect, there was first of all the sprinkling of blood on the doorpost in Egypt, once, never to be repeated. That was the Passover, that's redemption, that's the leading out. But after they got into the wilderness, they received instructions to make a tabernacle. And there they had the shedding of blood repeated in daily sacrifice and the yearly day of atonement. And that atonement was to take them in to the presence of God, to give them access and acceptance. So you see, Exodus, like Genesis, falls into two parts with its teachings. One is the leading out, the other the leading in. And don't forget the extreme importance of the Passover as it's described in Exodus 12 as a picture of redemption. 
Don't hurry over that. Pause over it. Notice how Exodus 12 commences. The Lord said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, This month shall be the beginning of months unto you. It shall be the first of the month to you. First of the year, rather, to you. And the emphasis on the word to you should make you ask, well, why to me? Why not somebody else? And the answer is this, that the Jewish year begins at the end of September. And the Passover is nearly always somewhere in April. So that's just six months afterwards. And Moses was instructed by God to tell the people who just finished and uh, got six months beyond the beginning of their year that they're going to start all over again. And that's truth, friends. You and I have our birthday into this natural world. And I believe everyone in this meeting can say, and I've got my birthday again into the family of faith. I do remember the date of my birth into this world. I, I, I never remember exactly the date of my birth but I do know it was in November, it's a pretty gloomy month, but I was very much illuminated in that time. So, I'm almost like uh, the same distance, you see. I was born in April, and then all over again I start having another birthday in November. And these people started their year in September, and they were told to start all over again in April. You and I begin our Christian life, not at the Red Sea, not at the River Jordan, but we begin our Christian life where Jesus Christ is crucified, the Passover Lamb. That's where we start. And then you're told they were to keep this Lamb from the 10th day of the month to the 14th day. And the reason was this, that your Lamb shall be without blemish, so there must be no opportunity given for someone to slip in as a sacrifice to God, a lamb that wasn't quite qualified. And when you come to the New Testament, you find that Christ, it wasn't exactly ten days, uh, a tenth unto the fourteenth, but there was a period of time just before his crucifixion when he was rigorously examined just as the lambs were being examined by the priest, Pilate was examining him. And what was Pilate's comment? Without blemish. He didn't use those words, but he said, I find no fault in him, which is the same. And he sent him to Herod, and Herod sent him back, I find nothing worthy of death without blemish. That's two of them. And a poor, wretched, dying thief, he said to his fellow criminal. He said, we are being punished justly for our sins, but this man hath done nothing amiss without blemish. And Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with that just man. I've been very troubled in a dream because of him without blemish. And then when he was dead, the, the Roman centurion looked at him afterwards, after piercing his side. He said, of a truth, this was the Son of God. So the Lamb was without blemish. He was tested through and through before he was offered, blessed be God. And then, 
the only time that I think it was ever enjoined upon anybody to be hasty having their food was at the first Passover. You keep your, your boots on because they didn't have their boots on in the ordinary way when they went to the hills. You keep your boots on, your loins girded, your staff in your hand as though a, a modern version would be you've got your hat on, you've got your bag, you've got your umbrella and you're just nibbling into a sandwich. Why? It's the Lord's Passover. Eat it in haste, you're going out. And the moment they were redeemed, friends, you know what they became? Pilgrims. And that's true of you and me. We start a pilgrimage, and we're on it still. And will not end until the Jordan, whenever that shall be for you or for me. But there's one thing about it, Joshua will be with us. And Joshua is the Old Testament word, Jesus. So there we have Exodus. And the guarantee all the way through that wilderness journey, in spite of their rebellion and sin, that when once they started, they should never be without the leading of the Lord, day or night. We were speaking only earlier before this meeting of the, the peculiar character of human people mainly. Unless you're very well trained, you get put down in a desert say a great stretch of desert land in Australia or America. And if you start off on a walk and you don't come back within a reasonable time, those who know all about it, they go around the other way to meet you. Because as sure as fate, you'll be walking in a great circle. And consequently, when the children of Israel started walking through a wilderness, they had the guarantee that someone who knew the way would be there day and night. And you and I are walking through the wilderness of this world. Aren't you glad that God has written that he never took away that leading even though they murmured against him, even though he punished them. He never took away that leading until they reached the banks of the River Jordan. So friends, I'm going to suggest to you, you don't ask the Lord to lead you. You say, well, what a monstrous thing to tell me. Well, I'll tell you what I told a lady once. She said to me, oh, she said, I do want you to pray for me. I said, yes, why? She said, oh, I want, I want to have the Lord's leading. But as I happen to know a little bit about this lady, I said, I'm not going to pray for you. Oh, she said, that's shocking. I said, I'm not going to pray for you that the Lord may lead you. She said, why not? I said, he's leading you all the time, but you don't want to go. I said, you pray for the, you pray for yourself, Lord. Give me grace to want the very thing and to follow the leading. I said, that's your trouble. He's leading you all the time. But you want to go one way and you're asking me to pray that the Lord may change his mind. I'm not going to do it. So there's that bit about leading we want to remember for ourselves. Well then, I think we can just perhaps touch upon the prophet Isaiah. That falls into two great sections. In the middle of it, we have the story of the failure of Hezekiah and the destruction by God of the Assyrians. A little bit of history in the book of prophecy is to show you that what God has done, he can do. Now the first part of Isaiah contains the words, the voice from the temple, which is quoted in the New Testament, seeing they shall not see, hearing they shall not hear, and desolation coming as a consequence of rebellion. And then, the second part opens with chapter 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. 
There's another voice saying, cry. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Oh, he says, yes, all flesh may be grass. But the promise of restoration to Israel does not depend upon men. For the word, mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And embedded in the prophet Isaiah is that grandest of all chapters where we have the great foreshadowing of the sacrificial work of Christ, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. And it's a good thing to remember that twice over in the prophecy of Isaiah we have a meeting place. In the first passage, the Lord hath made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. And in the last verse, he made intercession for the transgressors is a same word, he made a meeting place for those who were redeemed. So, if anybody wants to know where your meeting place is, don't forget to tell them it's already recorded in Isaiah 53. I thought you used to go to the chapel of the, uh, what do you call it? Oh yes, I do. But my true meeting place, my true meeting place is there. First of all, where my sins were dealt with and met on him. And then secondly, he's made a meeting place for me. So, I belong to a meeting from which I cannot be turned out. And some friends have almost gnashed their teeth because I can't be excommunicated because I don't belong to anything that can ever suffer that intrusion. My meeting place is where Christ sits at the right hand of God. This place in this chapel is only a temporary makeshift while we are travelling home. Of course, it's a nice little makeshift, but after all said and done, it's a building made by hands Well, one day will be just the same as the rest of the works in this world. It'll just be a scrappy. But the day is coming when the prophecy of Isaiah will be gloriously fulfilled as other parts have been. And shall we borrow just one more word because our time is almost up. You remember how an Ethiopian was travelling to Jerusalem to keep the feast and he was reading the prophecy of Isaiah in his chariot and he was reading a portion of it and the apostle or the evangelist Philip was bid by the Spirit of God to draw near and the man turned to him and he said of whom does this uh, prophet speak? Is he speaking about himself or some other man? Well that's a proper thing to know otherwise you could mistake it and this is a bit I think we do we rejoice to know that Philip beginning of that self-same scripture preached unto him Jesus yes and we shall, we shall not make many mistakes if in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6 and right the way through we begin to see that almost every page is a finger post in some form or another that is like John the Baptist lifting his finger and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. To take redemption out of the Bible is to strip it to pieces. To preach a Christ who is a mere reformer or a miracle worker or a public teacher is to degrade him. The one thing he came to do was to die the just for the unjust and all the rest of it is subsidiary. Well, we, we haven't got very far. We did race up these steps, I'll admit. But I think most of you will wish 
that we shall not say, well, that's as far as we are going, we'll have another subject entirely next time we meet. I think we should have to go on with this introduction and just climb the rest of the stairs next time we meet and then I pass it on to you, especially you friends who may be teaching others that you may find this is a helpful way to acquaint the young beginner and get over some of the difficulties that we all meet when we first come to this book of all books, the Word of the Living God.